Powered by Righteous Media. Welcome to Independent Americans. Welcome to episode 145. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Santa Claus is almost here, but so is the return of COVID. And so is the one-year anniversary of January 6th. So before we get to the presents and the eggnog and the celebrations, now is still a time to stay vigilant. Quote, Mark, the president needs to tell people in the Capitol to go home. This is hurting all of us. He is destroying his legacy, Laura Ingram wrote. Please get him on TV, destroying everything you have accomplished, Brian Kilmeade texted. Quote, can he make a statement, ask people to leave the Capitol, Sean Hannity urged. As the violence continued, one of the president's sons texted Mr. Meadows, quote, he's got to condemn this shit ASAP. The Capitol Police tweet is not enough, Donald Trump Jr. texted. Meadows responded, quote, I'm pushing it hard, I agree. Still, President Trump did not immediately act. Donald Trump Jr. texted, again and again, urging action by the president. Quote, we need an Oval Office address. He has to lead now. It has gone too far and gotten out of hand, end quote. But hours passed without necessary action by the president. These non-privileged texts are further evidence of President Trump's supreme dereliction of duty during those 187 minutes. 187 minutes. 187 minutes that should haunt every single American this holiday season and forever. 187 minutes that could have killed the Speaker of the House, could have hanged the Vice President, and could have brought down the U.S. government. 187 minutes that we can, should, and must never forget. 187 minutes that happened one year ago next month. Yeah, time flies when your country's on fire. But this time last year, we knew a storm was coming. We warned you a storm was coming on this program. You heard from me, you heard from Malcolm Nance, you heard from Admiral James Stravides, you heard from Jason Dempsey. We warned that there would be violence initiated by radicals. But we had no idea it would be like what we saw on January 6th. And that clip you just heard, that's Liz Cheney's voice, Republican Congresswoman from Wyoming and the vice chair of the January 6th Select Committee. Liz Cheney is one of only two Republicans on the committee, the other one being Illinois Congressman Adam Kinzinger. 
And that's Congresswoman Liz Cheney reading the text messages sent by Fox host Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, Brian Kilmeade, and Donald Trump Jr. to President Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, during the insurrection, imploring him to get Trump to do something. Now, many in America seem surprised by these texts, but none of this is surprising. These texts and the entire investigation continue to go to great and necessary depths to confirm what we all saw happening on our television screens almost one year ago. It's what we watched unfold for 187 minutes. 20 years after 9-11, it was like watching the biggest tragedy in America since that day unfold on live TV. And thankfully, due to tremendous heroism and some good luck, that building didn't go down. So these texts aren't surprising. The only surprise is that the Fox News host didn't try to keep the insurrection going and that Donald Trump Jr. didn't want to keep it going. And maybe that he needed to go through Mark Meadows to get a message to his own dad. That might have been surprising. But the rest of it wasn't. This was all years in the making. Politico reported this week that on January 5th, one day before the insurrection, Chief of Staff Mark Meadows wrote in an email that the National Guard was on standby to, quote, protect pro-Trump people, unquote. He was putting the National Guard on standby to protect pro-Trump people. That's what he wrote. Well, that's awful and treasonous but it should surprise nobody. Trump always thought the military belonged to him personally rather than to the American people. He thought it was his military, his generals, and now his politicization of the military remains one of the most damaging parts of his long and toxic legacy. And one year later, we're seeing the clear signs. The American people are starting to lose confidence in the military. According to a stunning new survey published this week, for the third year in a row, the Reagan Institute's National Defense Survey found a declining percentage of Americans surveyed reported high confidence in the military. It was across political, gender, age, and all kinds of other demographics. And this is what it said, quote, We've tested over the last three years. A number of public institutions and institutional trust is declining overall in American society. The Reagan Institute declared that confidence in the military began to fall in 2019 from 70% to 63%, and then down to 56% earlier this year. And in the nine months since that last survey, confidence dropped down again to 45%. So in three years, confidence in the military has gone from 70% to 45%. That's the sharpest decline and the lowest level of confidence in the military since the survey began. And the survey is being done by the Reagan Institute. 
It's not being done by George Soros or MSNBC, but it really shouldn't be surprising either. Americans may be slow, but they're not stupid. They know that our military is being manipulated and used by corrupt political leaders, most of whom have never served in the military themselves. The American people saw Trump use the National Guard to clear peaceful protesters out of Washington. They saw Trump order U.S. troops to the Mexican border to build his bullshit wall. They saw hack governors like South Dakota's Christy Nome send South Dakota National Guard troops to the border in Mexico to curry favor with Trump. They also saw Joe Biden yank everything out of Afghanistan and leave our troops with yet another impossible mission. And they see state National Guard units in red states that are loyal to Trump going anti-vax and refusing a direct order from the Secretary of Defense to administer the COVID vaccine to soldiers. The American people read the news and they see text messages from Mark Meadows saying that the National Guard was on standby to protect pro-Trump people. None of this is normal. None of this is okay. The American people are slow, but they're not stupid. And they're watching what's happening. And they're learning about the texts from Don Jr. and Laura Ingram and Mark Meadows. And this is only what we got in an early Christmas present of darkness. It's only what we've seen so far as the committee battles to overcome blocks and undermining every single day from one of the two major parties in this nation. So just imagine what we haven't seen and heard yet. So this Christmas time, there's only one thing these traders should get for Christmas. Subpoenas. Subpoenas. It's time to subpoena all of them. Every single one of them. Laura Ingram, Don Jr., and President Mayhem himself. Now, maybe it's coming, but it's not coming fast enough. Subpoena all of them. Make them answer the hard questions in front of the American people. It's not about party, and it's beyond politics. It's a national disgrace and a national security risk that it hasn't happened already. And it's a debacle that has our enemies celebrating. Every single day that America fails to hold people accountable who tried to overthrow our government, our enemies are celebrating. Foreign and domestic. Vladimir Putin is celebrating. And the white supremacist group Patriot Front is celebrating. And they're not just celebrating. They're recruiting. They want the downfall of America. And they're looking for radicals to join their fight. And they'll find them. Inside every institution in America including within the military, as we've discussed at length on this show. And now, finally, they will find it in some that are no longer in the military. Because this week, the Air Force discharged 27 airmen over the coronavirus vaccine mandate. The military is finally bringing the hammer down. And these 27 are believed to be the first U.S. service members removed from the military over the shot mandate. And as a result, they were formally removed from service for failure to obey an order. 
but they won't be the last. The number of active-duty U.S. military personnel declining to be vaccinated against the coronavirus is now approaching 40,000. 40,000 people, 40,000 service members. It's like a dream email list for our enemies to recruit from. That's the golden list of candidates for the American insurgency. The same American insurgency that attempted a coup one year ago will attempt other attacks and disruptions, especially if Trump runs again, and especially if he loses. While most of America has forgotten about January 6th or wants to forget it, the enemies of America are using it as a rally cry. And this is probably a good time to remind you that the FBI is still seeking information regarding domestic terrorists that attacked the Capitol almost one year ago. Yes, they're still looking for them, including the guy who set a pipe bomb outside the RNC and the DNC. So yes, one year later, we need subpoenas to start flying around Washington like Steph Curry three-pointers. And if Laura Ingram and Sean Hannity and Don Jr. refuse the subpoenas, lock them up. Lock them all up. Get them in the same chain gang with Steve Bannon and send them all to Guantanamo. 20 years after 9-11, there are only a few dozen terrorists left in Gitmo. And so there's apparently plenty of room for the next generation of terrorists threatening and participating in the destruction of America. So this Christmas, it's not Xboxes or American Girl dolls or Barbie dream houses or new puppies for everyone in the Trump family and their minions. It should be subpoenas for everyone. Yes, Santa has a special gift for all of you most naughty little boys and girls who tried to overthrow our government in a violent coup. Subpoenas. Yes, subpoenas. Merry Christmas. Ho, ho, ho. Yes, subpoenas for everyone. And right after he finishes delivering all those presents, Santa will make room on his sleigh to drop all you naughty boys and girls off for a special winter break on the beach in a sunny and tropical place. Gitmo! Yes, congratulations! You win a free trip to Gitmo! If you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. Merry Christmas. Ho, ho, ho. Yeah, Santa is coming very soon. But before he does, I want to give you an early holiday gift of content and a very high-profile guest. Unless you haven't already read the title, you know who it is. He's the host of Meet the Press, one of the most influential and iconic political shows in America. He's also the host of Meet the Press Daily on MSNBC and the political director at NBC. On this show, we've had Chuck Hagel and we've had Chuck D. And now we finally got Chuck Todd. (laughs) 
Doesn't the Meet the Press theme song sound a little like Star Wars music? Yeah, I think so too. Well, there's a reason for that. The Meet the Press theme song is called The Mission, and it was created in 1985 by John Williams. John Williams is an Air Force veteran, and in the Air Force, he played the piano and brass and conducted and arranged music for the U.S. Air Force Band. He would go on to create that song you just heard, The Mission, which is also used by NBC Nightly News. John Williams also created the theme song for Sunday Night Football on NBC. But before that, he was also the composer behind the scores for Star Wars, Superman, and E.T., the extraterrestrial. He's done a ton of composing for George Lucas and for Steven Spielberg. And he won 25 Grammy Awards, five Academy Awards, and four Golden Globe Awards. With 52 Academy Award nominations, Williams is the second most nominated individual ever, after only Walt Disney. Not bad for an Air Force vet. Anyway, that's the iconic song that plays before every new show of the iconic Meet the Press, hosted by Chuck Todd since September of 2014. Chuck Todd was born in Miami, is a father of two, a fan of hair metal and early rap, and lives in Virginia, just outside of D.C. Now, I've been a guest on Meet the Press twice, and it's a big deal. And the first time, I will never forget. It was March 18th, 2014. David Gregory was the host at the time, and I was there for a show focused on what's next in Afghanistan. That was back in 2014. It was around the anniversary of the Iraq War, and I was on a panel with Wes Moore, my friend, a previous guest on this show, and now a candidate for governor of Maryland. Also with me was John Krakauer, the author of Where Men Win Glory, about the death of Pat Tillman, and Washington Post journalist and legendary author Bob Woodward, and Helene Cooper, Washington editor of the New York Times. And in the one-on-one before our panel was Senator John McCain. And after our panel was a conversation with George Clooney, But Meet the Press is the big stage. It's unlike any other show I've ever been on. And the conversation in the green room with me and John McCain and Wes Moore, three combat vets shooting the shit, was something I'll never forget. There were a lot of people packed into that green room. But it was me, McCain, and Wes for a lot of it. And it was the McCain that only vets really know the former pilot, who was always ribbing and down to joke around. We are three vets shooting the shit right before we stepped out onto a stage and the biggest Sunday show in America. Now, at Meet the Press, there's a studio audience, or at least there was then. And like many other live shows, it's over really fast. But what happens afterward is unlike any other show I've ever been on. The show ends, the cameras turn off, and you stay in your seat. And then a waiter comes over and puts fine china on the table in front of you. They bring you glasses and silverware and juice and coffee. And the host and all the guests that can stick around have a very nice breakfast on the set at Meet the Press. It's civil, it's delicious, and it's surreal. 
but it's nice. And it was civil. And it seems like forever ago. Tragically, that conversation in 2014 was about whether or not to pull out of Afghanistan. The same conversation we'd be having seven years later. And we continue to have now. But the situation has gotten worse. John McCain is gone. Nobody's really having breakfast together in Washington anymore. And Afghanistan is a massive and worsening humanitarian disaster. Millions are starving, literally. The Taliban is fully in control, and the world seems fine with it. Our president and Congress have firmly put Afghanistan in the rearview mirror, and things have now gotten so bad that parents are selling their children to get food to feed their other children. And today, it snowed in Afghanistan. It's winter in Afghanistan. The great American betrayal of Afghanistan is hitting a whole new level of darkness. Children are starving in the cold and snow. As we see and respond to the devastation in Kentucky, as we should, just imagine what it's like in Forgotistan right now, where there's no presidential focus and no hope for help this Christmas. So is all hope lost for Afghanistan, for America? I don't think so. As Tavis Smiley smartly laid out in our last episode, there's a big difference between optimism and hope. And I'm not optimistic about this winter for Afghanistan or America. But I'm always hopeful. Because hope is the oxygen of democracy. And we need it this winter this holiday season, more than ever. And we're going to explore all of it with the guy who hosts one of the biggest political shows in the world. Chuck Todd is here, and I'm going to ask him, why does political media suck? We're going to talk about affirmation versus information. We talk about Joe Rogan, Ben Shapiro, Chris Cuomo, Chris Wallace, Rachel Maddow, and the hyper-fragmentation of news. Chuck will give us his prediction for the 2024 nominees for president. And he even has an idea for an alternative to the two parties. That's very interesting. We'll talk about the deficit of service in America and what it's like to host an iconic TV show from your spare bedroom. And for our Patreon members, you'll get an exclusive extra section where we hear about Chuck's first car, his favorite drink, and which 90s band he loves most. Is Meet the Press the future or the past? It's a deep dive into politics and also into political media, which is the demented holiday gift that just keeps on giving. It's a conversation to help you stay vigilant because vigilance is the price of democracy. This show is all about the future and all about staying vigilant. No matter what Santa brings this Christmas, whether it's a Barbie dream house or a positive COVID test. This show is about providing light to contrast the heat. It's about keeping the hope, especially when it's the hardest to do. And it's a holiday time special delivery of the five eyes. Independence, integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. All gift-wrapped, nice and shiny, and sitting in your phone of Christmas podcast treats. 
It's real talk about real issues. No sugarcoating, no partisan spin, no corporate masters, no bullshit. In these trying times especially, independent Americans will continue to be your trusted place for independent news, politics, inspiration, and perspective. We'll continue to ride in on a podcast sleigh and deliver you a special stocking stuffer of unique, independent, and hard-hitting perspective like nowhere else in the media. And I'll continue to bring you newsmaking leaders, important, inspiring, and iconic Americans that are changing what America has been, what it is now, and what it will be in the future. Christmas is coming, but it'll be over in a flash. Then, sorry to break it to you, it's back to work. And just like Santa's elves, we've got lots of work to do. My gift to you is this information. And I hope you'll re-gift it all season long. And send me back the gift of your vigilance. This is another episode to keep us all vigilant. Because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. And it's not something we can afford to stop paying just because it's holiday time. And it's the gift that we got to leave behind for the next generation. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Welcome to a conversation about the all of 2021. Welcome to a conversation about the pandemic, the media, our politics, our divisions, and all that fun stuff that made 2021 such a hoot. Welcome to the mission. Welcome to Independent Americans, episode 145. Ladies and gentlemen, independent Americans around the country and around the world, happy holidays. Before we get to the holiday break, seems like everything is on fire. Just in time for Christmas, Washington is a mess, COVID is ramping up, and politics is as nasty and as divisive as maybe we've ever seen. But we have a very special guest to help us make sense of it, uh, a guy I've been eager to have on this show for a very long time, a person who guides the national conversation. I've been a guest on his show many times, but finally now the tables have turned. Excellent. The great and powerful Chuck Todd, welcome <laughs> to Independent Americans, my friend. Mr. Rykoff, it is a it is an honor and a pleasure. So um, I was trying to think about when we first met, and it, it has to be almost twenty years ago now, Chuck. When I, I was, I, I got to think that right around. Yeah, I've been at NBC fifteen, so at least fifteen years. Yeah, and know. and um, a, a lot has changed since then. Um, and I, I want to get into politics, yeah. of course. I want to talk about the evolutions in the media, um, talk about the future. But a, a question I want to ask you that I ask everybody. Where are you and how are you? Where am I? Well, physically, I'm in my house. I'm in my makeshift COVID studio. Um, it used to be known as my guest bedroom. Um, and and now, of course, uh, I think my mother thinks I just have come up with this as an excuse for her not to have a place to stay when she comes visit. Um, but uh, I, I am, you know, here's what I, I always answer this question and, and it is a truly honest an, uh, answer. Personally, I'm I'm my kids are great. My family's great. Everything's great. Uh, I have a great job. I'm very lucky. Um, but it's a miserable time to do these to do this job. Mm. And it's it is a troubling time 
to be an American citizen, but it's, but it's a pretty important time to be, to be doing what we're doing. I, I want to get into that because I feel like, um, you know, now you've got multiple platforms mm-hmm. and, you know, there's kind of different versions of Chuck. Sometimes you can let it fly and, and speak more <laughs> from the heart. And there's other times where you got to play it a little bit more down the middle, but let's talk about doing media in this environment. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm in my garage, which is probably much shittier than, than your living room, but we're all trying to make it work. And can right. you talk about, what has it been like to do meet the press during mm-hmm. COVID? I mean, you're in your living room. You right. had this thing behind you that kind of looked like a rocket launcher, but it was probably a camera or something. <laughs> but um, how do you, how do you do? You know, now you got the board taste. behind you. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll give you a little taste. I got see. I got you know. Basically, I can do meet the. I can. I you know. I'm having to do things like they'll they'll say, "All right, we need you to do a hit," and I'm like, "What month is it? Right? right? Do I need fall or winter or?" You know, this is the world we live in. So, so for uh, folks that are listening and not yeah. watching, Chuck is kind of scrolling through his. So uh, here's his winter. TBR, it looks like, there as you go. can see, here's winter, and then we can keep it going. That's different branding, and and you'll you'll watch it go here. Oh, look, it's fall, uh, as you can see here. The changing. Ah, that's summer. That's a good good one here. So, look, this has been. I think so Chuck, just for folks who are listening, you, you yeah. have a giant screen behind you and you're flipping yep. through various meet the press backgrounds. And I've been telling friends who aren't in the media and politics space, hey, these folks are doing this from home. And they're like, no, they're not doing it from home. But you've yeah. been doing most of your show from this living room or this so, extra guest room? Actually, no. Over the last six months, I have now I'm basically 75 percent of the time in studio okay. uh, Two, I have a daily cable show. I do that out of here on Tuesdays, but Wednesday through Friday, I do it from the bureau. Uh, Sundays is all from the bureau. Uh, occasionally I'll do some, some one-off hits for other NBC programming from the house. What is interesting and just how our, I think our, and this is the sort of what's the long-term impact of what COVID did. A couple of things. Number one is I think it has made it where those of us that work full-time in the industry, we're always going to have a camera at our house. And I say this, um, it's good and bad. Do you like to wake up at the office is one of the things I like to tell people. Do you like, you know, that ain't great. At the same time, the, the convenience of being able to do it from here and then go back to dinner can be helpful with your kids. So um, I do think in this sense, if you get hired by NBC now, you're going to get a camera installed in your house. So you got to decide, you know, it's almost like, look, it's just, that's just how the world works now. And I think the, the the thing that I'm most concerned about post-COVID is there's nothing like an in-person interview. You and I are going to have a nice interview here, but you know that. that, that and look, you, you do it on video smartly because facial expressions matter, right? Especially if you're just having a one-on-one conversation, how you can, you know, I have a better conversation with guests in person than I do when it's remote. And unfortunately now, I think a lot of guests realize, oh, I'd love to do Meet the Press, but man, I don't want it to take up 12 hours of my day, meaning I don't want to fly to DC overnight. Can I just be in my living room? And it's going to be harder and harder to say no, because the audience doesn't mind. Mm. We may mind, but the audience really doesn't mind. So that's something I think is long-term. And I think it's going to make the face-to-face interview more special. Mm. And for a guy like me who does a Sunday morning program, that's actually quite difficult because I think the face-to-face interview is is, um, what makes the show uh, Mm. versus just another cable show. I don't know if it's true for you, but for me, it makes booking a whole lot easier. I mean, I can't get people to come to a place, but I can get them to do a Zoom for for. On one hand, yes, that that is true. But are you getting the conversation you want to have? 
Yeah. So, so can they hide? I mean, especially, you know, you're asking some hard hitting interviews and, and sometimes folks, you know, you don't have the warm up, right? Like you're clicking right. the zoom on, you go. So there's no bullshitting about sports before. How's the weather? No, right? You're absolutely right. You, cause you, you sometimes want to see there are different ways to ask a tough question, as you know, and sometimes having that conversation beforehand gives you a sense of, Oh, I think I know how I'm going to be able to get them to respond. Cause look at the end of the day, you know, there, there's some people that think people in the media ought to just uh, act like some people do on Twitter, which is if you don't like what somebody's saying to you in an interview, just start to own them. Just start to like, you know, yell at them. And yeah, exactly. I view my job and that why people tune in to meet the press is they're looking for information. They're looking to understand why people have the views that they have. So my job is to surface that. And sometimes you do it in a friendly way and sometimes it's an antagonistic way. It all depends on the on, on what you think is the best way to get what the viewer needs. Mm. And that's ultimately how I'm trying to think about this. Well, you're you're also the steward of this, you know, nationally iconic show that's supposed to be the place for civility. Right. It's supposed to be a place for enlightenment. It's supposed to be a place for discourse. It's been that for generations of mm-hmm. Americans. But now there's this whole new media environment. So can we talk a bit about that? You know, people used to come to meet the press. Now you've got and maybe especially this week, a total upheaval in the media space. Right. Mm-hmm. Like Cuomo's gone at your mm-hmm. network. Rachel and Brian are going mm-hmm. into new roles. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris Wallace is now going mm-hmm. to CNN. But then simultaneously, you've got the rise of of Ben Shapiro and then Pod mm-hmm. Save America and Joe Rogan, right? Who gets, mm-hmm. I don't know, 20 million listeners per episode. Can you talk about what the future of especially political media looks yeah. like? And are we going to all devolve into dunking on each other on Twitter because that's what audiences expect? And it's going to come down to like you and C-SPAN as an alternative for people who want some kind of enlightenment? Well, look, this is my concern. We're, we're It's hyper-fragmentation, right? We are fragmenting in so many micro ways. There's a part of me that thinks that if we keep fragmenting, we may accidentally hit other bubbles. So what what is my point on this? So if you have hyper-fragmentation in politics, it's a bad thing. Um, In the sports world, that's a good thing, right? If you're really into college football, there's plenty of places just to, you're really into SEC football, right? There's, uh, There's a way you could get multiple media outlets just to do that. And maybe that accidentally gets you into a bubble that you don't get into politically, right? So there's a part of me that says, well, if we go to hyperfragmentation and everybody cherry picks their their specialty on every interest of theirs, okay? Look, I think there are people that listen to political podcasts uh, of one persuasion, but listen to your podcast for a different reason, and they may accidentally bump into another bubble, right? Because right. you're you're trying to. That's my. That's how I view meet the press. Like, look, I know maybe. Maybe half my audience is of one persuasion. Maybe a third of my audience is of another, and, a, and the other is sort of somewhere in the middle. I'm hoping to have these bubbles run into each other. And I think that's a, you know, that that's one situation we're in. The other thing that I think, and this is where I, I get frustrated, cable news is um, overhyped, and when it comes to its in on, on the its influence in the media landscape. There is more journalism done outside of cable news than within cable news. But the cable news personalities and the fact that cable news is viewed as sort of a, you pick your channel based on what what your views are, rather than picking your channel based on what information you're trying to get. 
And, you know, that is what concerns me. And I think you brought up Joe Rogan and I've been watching him and in, in, in a Ben Shapiro pod save America. And I, and I, and they probably would deny they're doing this, but I, I, if you look, listen to their first year of their podcast and you listen to what they've done now, it's clear they're catering to their listenership. They're catering to what will get them the most eyeballs fastest. And that is my concern with this kind of incentive structure that now exists in whatever you want to call this world of media. But I think cable news, because it's you have linear television is a shrinking audience. So people want to grasp, right, as much of it as they can before it goes. How do you do that? You make it, an, you know, an affirmation, not information. You see it with podcasts like it. Look, the incentive structure of Facebook, mm-hmm. you know, it is about eyeballs. It is about getting an audience. Ditto with how the pot, you know, how some of these um, things work and in, in, in the way they make money. And so I am concerned that the incentive structure leads people to to go to their viewers. And then you see like Joe Rogan's gone off into a, 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 another yeah. place that I think a lot of us didn't think, oh, really? You're, but you, is that but, you but believe that? I don't know yeah. whether he really believes it or is he's going there because that's where the audience is. Yeah. And that's where yeah. it's a it's almost like a, a quick hit. Oh, right. give me a hit. But, but objectively, so is so is Don Lemon, so is Rachel Maddow. That's my point. I'm saying so left Hannity, too. Right? Yeah, yeah. This yeah, is this yeah. is the business model. Right, right. Right. This is and and then you're going to have this problem, Paul. Is that uh, there's a great headline? Somebody said, you know, we have a news we have a news problem in this country because basically the news is only created for the uh, rich, red, and blue. And I thought it was an interesting meaning. This uh, journalism is behind paywalls. In a lot of places, the good journalism, most newspapers yep. are buying a paywall. So ergo, you have to have money to find out how you're in, being impacted or you have to pick a side. Right. If you want free media, that free media is hyper partisan. Right. So what do you do if you're an independent working class person just looking to find out what the hell's going on with your tax bill, with your grocery bill, with all all this? And and you don't feel like you're getting clean information. We have news deserts because yeah. of this. Can, now. I, can we go deeper on that in, in a yeah. different way too, Chuck? I mean, look, the, media, the, the cable news media is kind of like a self-licking ice cream cone, right? And, and it's become <laughs> this, this giant thing unto yeah. itself. But, it, you know, as a guy who's got an independent media company, I don't, you know, I'm everybody's guest, but I don't have an NBC camera. I'm still using the same MacBook Air, you know, shitty for the last three years. But as this disruption is happening, there seems to be a center of gravity that I think is is potentially most damaging, which is the collision of the existing party structure and corporate media. So there is there going to be a time or can we is it better for America for there, be, there to be a time when NBC doesn't host a debate? Right. When Fox doesn't host mm-hmm. a debate, when because the last debates were garbage. I think we all saw it became maybe the worst of the spectacle of yeah. what politics can become. And I've had. Errol Lewis on this show, right? Who's trying to do debates for city council in New York one and, mm-hmm. and many others. So is, is that not a key breaking point for the political parties, which have a stranglehold on one side of this and the corporate media that have another stranglehold on the other side of it as an independent and an unaffiliated person who digs into those issues regularly and wants more options. Is that not a key break point for us in politics where Trump could have said, fuck the debates, I'm out. Or, you know, a third party candidate could say, fuck the debates, I'm out. Is that not a key a pivot point here in our democracy right now? Well, yes and no. I, I actually think the power, the candidates have more power than ever. They just don't use it, hmm. you know, because ultimately they're the content, right? If you're, you know, that you can't have the debate without the candidates. 
So in some ways, the candidates are in more are, are, in, are, are more in control than they've ever been. It used to be the media had a lot of control. Well, where who else is going to deliver 20 million eyeballs? Well, you know, there's a, I'm not saying, you know, it's easy to get 20 million eyeballs outside of television, but it's not impossible. Yeah. And, and, it, and it is more more than ever possible. So on one hand, I think that that's. I think there's more leverage than ever if the candidates choose to have it. Um, but the political parties are different, you know, and this goes down in it. The political parties have never been weaker as institutions, right? They're, they really have no, if you really think about it, the political parties have not been able to rein in, um, uh, you know, sort of what is definitionally, you could argue, sort of out of control definition of what each party's become. Uh, and and they're so desperate for relevancy, they'll take anybody who's popular. You know, I, I joke that uh, five years ago, Bernie Sanders and, and Donald Trump found two dead carcasses on the side of the road. One was a donkey and one was an elephant. And they created zombie versions hmm. of the of, of them both. And they sort of exist. They're kind of familiar, but they're not what they used to be. Hmm. And they're a little bit different. And they're kind of and they have you know, they're they're not able to actually. Um, you know, parties have no power to stop things, to change candidates, things like that. But, but because we live in this binary system, they survive because they're not the other guy. They're not the other zombie. Um, and I, you know, so I, I, the political party weakness here, I think is something there while our partisanship has never been stronger, the political parties have never been weaker. Hmm. Uh, I don't know, if, Chuck, can, can I ask you to go, go yeah. in? Because I don't know. I mean, I don't know if they're zombies as much as they're like ailing infrastructure, right? They're, they're, they're what we got. And well, we yeah, got to get rid of it. Look, I'm, I'm a, you talk about breaking yeah. up big Yeah, big because media. if I can't, because here's what I'm talking about. I want to break about, up right? big media. They, I want to break do, up the two parties. Yeah, they, I think the right. Two so that, that's big. what I want to pull on, because they yeah. do have control of who gets on the ballot. I mean, you can't say in a place Correct. like New York City that, the, that the, the, the political parties are not dominant. I mean, Eric Adams was decided in June and it was over. Right. Fair I mean, enough. there's especially in, in the reddest and bluest places, there's there's a monopoly. Right. And and, and, and so how is there like, let's take this conversation forward. This is independent Americans. We talk about third party options. Where do the unaffiliateds go? It is what is your assessment of the opportunity for alternative uh, and and none of the above? Andrew Yang's trying to start yeah. the forward party. You know, we've had the Howard Schultz's of the world. Donald Trump may not get the nomination and could go on his own. Right. So what? how do you see that landscape in the future unfolding? Well, look, I don't think there is a room for a third party. I actually think if we did this, you actually have to have four parties. Okay. And I, I, you know, I'm a, I, I, I'm a believer that we talk about breaking up big tech, breaking up big media. I would argue we need to break up the big parties, right? The two parties are bigger than the constituencies they're trying to serve, you know? And I think 2016 gave us that first hint of this. If we were a European style system, not the parliamentary system, but more of think France, um, we'd have had four major parties. And you'd had four nominees, right? Bernie Sanders on the on the on the far left, Hillary would have been center left, Jeb Bush or John Kasich center right, and Donald Trump the populist right. And that does feel like it fits, right? You have about 25, 25, 25, 25. I you know, the problem with finding just a third party, right? The Howard Schultz movement or even Andrew Yang is the people they're targeting are the ones that always vacillate because the two parties don't quite serve what they're looking for, right? Most people in the middle 
and and I'm not going to guess which are usually two thirds, one third on, on, on culture and fiscal, right? They're two thirds one way two or one third the other or vice versa, whatever it is, right? Maybe. And so, which is why they're uncomfortable in either party. You know, maybe they're a little socially conservative, but fiscally liberal, vice versa. I don't think you can create a, a party that can serve serve that because you're always going to have the social tension. But if you do sit there with four parties, here's what that would give you. And maybe I'm being a little Pollyannish. Nobody can get a majority. That's the good news. Everybody. So in order to gain power, you'd actually have to compromise to gain power. And if you learn to compromise to gain power, then all of a sudden you learn to compromise to enact power. So I really think it's about sort of changing the way we think about if our founders wanted politics to wanted our answers to be compromises. They knew there wasn't going to be a one size fit all or they would have created a structure that had the majority always wins. And they didn't quite do that. Right. They wanted some sort of structure that created uh, that created compromise, two thirds to one third, one, whatever it is. And, and, I, and again, there's some things people argue there's no compromise on X. The founders knew that and said, it doesn't matter. you got to build that into the system. If we had a four major party system and, and the biggest impediment is ballot access, you, you are right on that. But if you basically got it where you got rid of the duopoly of ballot access, we go to this instant runoff voting and and then you you, you find out what the coal look in 16. Maybe it would have been a Clinton case of coalition. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it would have been a Trump Bernie coalition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah, I think it's it's there's actually it seems to be, you know, there's a race, right? Like, can we rebuild the structure before it burns to the ground? That's right? a great and, way of sad and, a and, sad and a, a great observation. Yeah, You're absolutely right. And and yeah. I think I think there is an increasing desire for ranked choice voting, for public financing, for leveling of the playing field. Well, and I'm me, not an you know, let me, I'm let an let advocate. Me it, let me throw it at yeah. you this way. Good. The idea that we have two parties. Uh Imagine if every clothing store only had two sizes. Yeah. Yeah. But and here's, have- and here's the, here's the other part that I, let's take that analogy. And the next generation doesn't even go into stores. Right. So, right. so, so there's a whole new generation right. that says none of the above. I'm not a joiner. Right. And, and I think that's good for democracy. George Washington didn't have a party allegiance. He warned us against the division of the parties. And, and in some ways, you know, the, the, the bifurcation of the media and, and the kind of the, 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 the title fight matchups of one on one perpetuates that in the media where we've got two guys in, or, or mostly in a box where you got two guys on a stage yeah. down to the final, you know, Drago versus Rocky matchup. And I am one of many who are trying to push that forward because I care more about the democracy than I do about the media or the parties. And especially now, as we have this conversation, January 6th is 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 yeah. everything, I think. And I would argue many folks in the media took their eyes off the ball. But I think there's a deeper through line here, which is, you know, you know that you've had me on a lot to talk about national security, foreign policy, defense. Right. There seems to be a lack of cultural competency in the media on these issues. There, there are no Joey Galloways, right? There, you know, there are no Hackworths. Like I'm, I'm rare, right? There's nobody who's a veteran who hosts a show except for Pete Hegseth on Fox. Yeah. You've got folks who kind of swoop in, and I think there, I, I question, and I would ask you, 
you know, it has so much of the media missed the importance of January 6th because it's a national security issue. In the same way, 9-11 was hard to understand. There was a lack of full grasp of the issue. And even the pandemic, the national security impl- implications seem to be overlooked at times while I think our enemies were celebrating. So if we get to the core, in my view, of why January 6th isn't the number one story all the time, is it not also in part because at your network and, and most others, almost every single other, there's a lack of cultural competency when it comes to national security? Well, let me, I have a different, I have a different theory on this issue and I'll get to it in a second, but the issue of January 6th is, you know, this is to me the conundrum that everybody is facing. It's not just in the media, but I would argue it's also the elected leadership that is trying to figure out how to create urgency on this issue. You know, as you know, you could create urgency to the point where if the sky is always falling, then people tune it out. Right. And and look, I could tell you every week we have this debate, you know, and I've said it before. The single most important issue right now is the future of this democracy. So somebody will say, well, then every story you do should be that. Well, I would argue every day I do do a story based on that. But not every, you know, at the end of the day, whether you like it or not, we are a democracy and you got to meet the voters where they are, too. So I think it's a it's a tension. Uh, It's a healthy tension at times. It's it can feel unhealthy when. When the media is sitting here pointing fingers, you're not doing enough on this. You know, look, we got a whole propaganda echo chamber here that is making this story very difficult to break through. You know, when MSNBC does a story on January 6th, they're educating zero. Right. I say this. No, no disrespect. Did it with CNN. Their viewers are well aware of the problem, the urgency and the concern about this. How do we get the other uh, echo chamber to, to focus on it, right? That's a challenge. But let me go to your other larger point. Um, we have a deficit of service in this country, okay? Uh, 20 years ago, we would have said it's military service. I would argue it, it what we were, we're missing is a shared sense of being an American. Um, every, when I look at the death of Bob Dole, right, it, it puts this period on a sentence of a generation of World War II leaders. And we talked about in Max Cleland's death about the Vietnam veterans in the Senate were this cohesive unit that whenever things got totally off the rails, they were able to bring it back, ditto with the World War II veterans. And it sort of kept our equilibrium. And I remember, look, I, I remember my old man used to say, he goes, he got really nervous when Gorbachev became the head of the USSR. I said, why? He goes, because he has no memory of World War II. You know, mm-hmm. he always he, lo- he always felt mm-hmm. took comfort that Brezhnev knew the slaughter mm-hmm. yeah. and understood that people die in war. And it was always this concern. If you get a generation that never experienced it, will they understand it? I have some hope of your generation, Paul, of the Iraq and Afghanistan veterans, that as they continue to gain elective power, uh, that they will serve the same role that the vet, Vietnam vets did, the World War II vets did. I hope I'm right about that. But what, where, what I would say is the bigger problem we have is we need more people in service. Does that mean more people in military service? No. But I think we need a draft of community service. Yep. And I think we need to borrow what our friends in Israel do, right? They have mandatory two years. But look, I'm not going to say you have to be in the quote unquote military. Uh, I think it would be very healthy for a lot of people yep. to do it. Yep. Okay. Don't get me wrong. Probably the best education you can get, best opportunity, best, you know, all of those things. But if you wanted to do your two years at a food bank, you wanted to do your two years and it's part of a GI bill type yep. of thing, yep. right? You, I think you, that's right. I think that's right. We Jeff, have to think, have it because yeah. 
the lack, what it would do is if all of us, no matter what walk of life we went into, had that shared sense of community, people we were in the, you know, in the, in the warehouse sorting food for two years or uh, uh, living in barracks in South Korea, it brings you a different perspective yeah. of community, uh, of the sense of that America is an idea, not an ethnicity. I'm, not I'm with you on that. that. I'm with you on so that. I because do I think that yeah. could fix this problem you say, which is you're not wrong uh, on, on, the, on the national security front, although I, I, I think there's more expertise than you think. There's just not audience demand for it. I'll set that aside. Um, but this issue of, of, of giving something back to this country and, and basically making it a, a, a rite of passage for early adulthood, I think is something that's necessary if we're going to keep this play I, thing together. I'm, I'm with you on most of that. And um, I know we got to wrap up and I hope you can stick around for a couple of quick fire yep. questions for our Patreon members. You know what the, the challenge is, Iraq and Afghanistan veterans have been saving America for 20 years. OK, and, and we can't always be the ones to do it. Afghanistan's a great example. We're talking about the great okay. American betrayal of Afghanistan. And the challenge now is we, we can't interpret for people who don't speak the language. So I think you're right. There needs to be a connective tissue across the country. Bob Dole might be the last high profile World War II veteran that we recognize in this country. And okay. if it's up to only us, we're speaking to people who don't speak the language. So I think we've got to find a way for our our understanding and our knowledge to be shared oh. and felt at a very visceral level. Can right? you believe it's been since 1992 that we had a president of the United States with military service? Yes, I believe it. Yes. Yes. Because most of America hasn't served. And, you know, and, and, and think about, you know, you got Prince Harry over here. Think about all the kids that also haven't haven't served. Right. Well, actually though, the the, the Prince did, that's the irony. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's a contrast. So let me ask you this. You're a sports guy. Will you make a prediction? If you had to put money right now, who is the presidential matchup in the next cycle? Uh, I, I, you know, Obviously, Trump v. Biden would be the most likely scenario at this point. Um, I, I just know that at, at any point when you when you're this far out and that looks like the most likely scenario, you know it's not going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have come to this uncomfortable conclusion that Trump can only beat Biden, and Biden can only beat Trump. Hmm. Discuss. Hmm. So uh, I think I, uh, I think that's I think that's yeah. a good one for us to ruminate yeah. on. The, the question I always put out there is that that puts a lot of stake on both of their health. And that's the variable here with two it's very most old guys. Variable. Right. Yeah, the, old, look, the old guys that are that have not, you know, they're not running marathons. These two could go down a problem in this country. It's it's um, the baby boomers uh, and older who who won't leave this leave the stage. It's, nope. you know, Gen X has not had a chance to leave. Well, they're going to have it real quick. And uh, I'm going to I'm going to thank you for for coming by. Thank you for all you do. Thank you for your generosity enjoying the show and for keeping the focus. You've been one of very few that have kept the focus on national security and defense. Thank you for saying um, that. I'm going to stick around and ask you a couple quick fire questions. But thank you, Chuck Todd, for all you do. I hope that they don't make you work from your living room throughout the holiday. <laughs> thank you, Paul. That's all right. I'll, uh, at least I have work. So I'll take it. <laughs> Excellent. Happy holidays, my friend. Thank you, you too. There you have it. Chuck Todd, ladies and gentlemen. You heard Chuck Hagel. You heard Chuck D. And now you have heard Chuck Todd. What other show does that? 
And you can see Chuck Todd every Sunday on NBC on Meet the Press and daily on Meet the Press Daily. You can also, of course, follow him on Twitter. And he does a weekly Meet the Press podcast, which is great. And you should check it out. I was his guest last month for a conversation on Veterans Day, service, Afghanistan, independent politics, and my friend and mentor, Max Cleland. Chuck Todd gets a lot of shit. That's part of the job. But Chuck Todd is a good guy. And he's a helper. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers. You know, even just on the sidelines. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. The helpers are out there. Check the hashtag, look for the helpers on Twitter, and share yours. They are out there. And this week, an incredible helper will be honored in Washington, D.C. at the White House. Sergeant First Class Alwyn Cash will finally receive the Medal of Honor this week, posthumously. Our friend Dan Lamont, the past guest on this show, had a deep dive for the Washington Post. But here's what you need to know. In January of 2005, Sergeant First Class Alwyn Cash and his unit, 1st Battalion, 15th Regiment, 3rd Infantry Division, my old division, deployed to a decrepit airfield north of the Tigris River that U.S. forces called Forward Operating Base McKenzie. Their patrols to the nearby town frequently got hit by al-Qaeda fighters. Colonel Jimmy Hathaway, who became Cash's company commander that April, said, it was always a powder keg. There was always a fight going on someplace. And on October 17th, the soldiers from that unit were assigned a reconnaissance mission to assure a vital supply route from nearby Balad Air Base. A sandstorm hit and prevented any U.S. aircraft from observing any potential threats along the road. But unit leaders, including Sergeant First Class Cash, decided they needed to launch a patrol anyway. And a convoy carrying 17 soldiers and their interpreter was just a couple of miles from their base when an explosion hit. Sergeant Gary Mills, in the back of Cash's Bradley, felt the vehicle veer to the right just before the blast. An instant later, he saw the interpreter, Baca, engulfed in flames beside him. And Sergeant First Class Cash leaned into the flames. From the second Bradley, First Lieutenant Leon Mathias witnessed the explosion and then saw Cash under gunfire. His crew opened fire on a nearby tree line as Cash pulled the wounded from the wreckage and others raced to smother the flames. I swear, said Matthias, who's now a lieutenant colonel, it looked like a movie to me. Matthias radioed to base, requesting immediate aid. By the time Cash had pulled out the last man, it appeared he was wearing no clothes. His uniform was so burned off, Matthias said that his pants looked completely shredded, like someone took scissors to it and just cut it up. Over and over again, Cash ran into the fire to save others. Helicopters were prepared to evacuate them, but Cash insisted the other soldiers leave first, and he refused to go on a stretcher, despite his extreme burns. Sergeant First Class Alwyn Cash was burned over 72% of his body, but he refused to get on a stretcher. The last time I saw him, said Lieutenant Colonel Matthias, he was walking to the helicopter in a shredded uniform. 
The Army sent the burdened soldiers, including Cash, for treatment at Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio, Texas. They were split into two groups, with the least injured among them on one side and the rest in the other. Many of them were burned badly, and a number were placed into a medical coma for days. Cash had burned over 72% of his body, but he continued to share optimism. He and other soldiers made plans to go out and go hunting, despite the long recovery ahead. Cash was in a good mood. He was thinking about his brothers, even until the end. And Cash died on November 8th, about three weeks after the attack. But not before he saved as many others as he could. And not before he defined for the ages what it meant to be a hero. Cash's widow will be awarded the Medal of Honor on his behalf this week at the White House. He'll be the first African-American to receive that honor for service in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Sergeant First Class Alwyn Cash is forever a helper. Keep his family in your thoughts this holiday, but honor his memory by sharing his story. Look for the helpers. They're out there, folks, even when the fires are the hottest. You can check out more about this story in the fantastic article by Dan Lamont. I'll post it in the notes on this show, and it'll be on the Independent Americans website. You can also find a link to TAPS, the organization that will help the families of the fallen, like Cash's. You can also see video from my conversation with Chuck Todd and get Independent Americans gear for the holidays. You can join our Patreon community and much more if you take your sleigh on over to independentamericans.us. And while you're there, please fill out our first annual listener survey. I want to hear from you. Our listeners like you are the fuel for this show. And as we get ready to close out 2021, I'd love to get your feedback on how we can make this show better and learn more about who's listening. So if you can, please just take a few minutes, answer the free confidential questions. I know your time is valuable. And as a special thank you and incentive, I will send free independent American t-shirts to five of you chosen at random who finished the survey. It takes you only about three minutes total. And it's linked in this show description and also at independentamericans.us. You can also, of course, find Independent Americans and Righteous on YouTube and see videos from all our shows. Be sure to check us out on social media. And you can guess the guest every single Wednesday. And last week, of course, like the Steph Curry of Independent Americans guess the guest, our man Delfino Sanchez from Houston, Texas, got it. It was a little after the buzzer, but he got it. He tweeted, Paul, this came out a bit too late for me to guess. Truthfully, I likely wouldn't have got it without a more revealing clue, but here's my day late participation. He correctly guessed our guest last episode, Tavis Smiley. So stay frosty out there, Delfino. Thank you for participating, and thank you for all you do down there in Houston, Texas. Check out Delfino's tree service if you need trees removed in Houston, Texas, or anywhere else. But my thanks to all of you who played Guest to Guest and shout out especially to our Patreon members. We will do a special holiday Zoom coming up at some point before Christmas. Check Patreon for more, but we will drink some eggnog. There will be presents. Santa Rykoff will be there. And if you love this show, give me a gift, please. Support us and go to the Apple Podcast Store and give us five stars. And be sure to subscribe for free and share. And... 
Give the ones you love a special holiday gift. Check out the Rob Sarah podcast, The Firefighters. If you're one of America's firefighters, if you're a first responder, or you're the family or friend of one, you know this podcast is your new home. It's powered by Righteous Media, sponsored by our friends at Rocky Boots, and it's just in time for the holidays. And to close out 2021, Righteous Media is continuing to bring the fire. And we have another new show dropping in the next week. This is something different. This is something good. And you get to hear about it first. Righteous Media is continuing to bring you the five eyes. Always and in all ways. And coming off the hugely successful launch of the Firefighters with Rob Sarah, I am proud to give you a sneak preview of the newest Righteous Media creation coming in 2022. It's called B-Dorm. Here's the trailer. Thanks for tuning in to the B-Dorm podcast. I am your co-host, Don Elliver, joined as always by Justin Jericho Turner. And we are two former college roommates getting together a couple of decades later to talk about life, business, culture, media, entertainment, and everything in between. Let's hit it. You ever see an eclectic group of friends and wonder how the hell such a group of diverse people ever ended up meeting in the first place and then getting along? You ever wonder what kind of conversations take place behind closed doors when people can just be real with each other? That's what the Beat On Podcast is about. We dive into a range of topics from the intellectual to the sophomoric. Everybody's got an opinion. So why should you listen to ours? It's pretty simple. It's well-informed and it's well-rooted. As a career educator and as a community organizer, I spent years working for nonprofits that are youth focused in New York City before moving on to teach at City University of New York. Since then, I've been focusing on my photography career. I was able to build a PR firm that supports designers of color. So let me tell you a little bit about my background. I've been able to navigate the hurdles of corporate America to climb up the ladder and then use that success as a launching pad to manifest my entrepreneurial dreams. I spent over a decade and a half as a senior executive in global business development. So if any of those are things that you aspire to do or you're currently in the process of manifesting for yourself, then you need to tune into the B-Dorm Podcast. We got some guests and topics coming up that are going to be highly relevant to your aspirations, but with a lighthearted spin to keep it fresh and entertaining. B-Dorm Podcast. Like, subscribe, give us all them stars. And be sure to visit bdorm.us for more great content and video. This is the B-Dorm Podcast. Powered by Righteous Media. Yes, B-Dorm. I went to college with Don and Justin, and they are about to bring the fire. If you liked The Breakfast Club with Charlemagne the God, or maybe you liked Howard Stern back in the day... Or if you're looking for something fresh and different for your early morning or maybe your late night, the B-Dorm podcast is coming in 2022 and it's going to be fun, real, and impactful. So look for it anywhere you get podcasts. You can go to righteous.us. You can check out the new B-Dorm website. Subscribe now and it will be coming in hot in 2022. And you can hear the first episode specially designed just for our Righteous Media fans. But check it out. B-Dorm podcast coming in hot in 2022. And speaking of impactful shit from Righteous coming to end 2021, be sure to check out another new episode of While the Rest of Us Die Thursday on Vice TV. 
You can set your DVR, or if it's already played, you can go back and check it out. But it's the final episode, episode number eight of season two. I've told you I'm a consulting producer and a contributor, and Righteous Media and I are proud to bring you this urgent, powerful season two of this series every Thursday, ending this Thursday at 10 p.m. Ephraim Films, Anthony LaPay, Jeffrey Wright, me, we're tearing into the most important, most scary, most deadly, most urgent issues facing us all. And this week, in the final episode, just in time for the holidays, we're talking about another joyous topic, opioids. Yep. Rich and nasty bastards are getting rich, while the working people are getting pounded. On the season finale of While the Rest of Us Die... These companies knew where these products were going, and they knew it was being abused. We start to get reports that abuse of OxyContin is becoming widespread. The U.S. turned a blind eye to that reality. It's just going to keep going on. We're losing people left and right. Can we get ahead of this thing? I don't know. While the rest of us die. Yep. It's time to turn a righteous laser on to the important issue of opioids. It's the silent enemy that's killed more of our fellow Americans than Al-Qaeda, and even more than COVID. We're losing at least 100,000 of America's sons and daughters every year to opioids, and it's pounding rural areas nationwide. Where I live now, it's devastating. Two of my son's kindergarten classmates, two out of less than 20, lost a parent to opioids. That's the real shit. Big Pharma and the Sackler family are partying while the rest of us die. And if you still haven't seen the show, you can binge the first seven episodes for free at vicetv.com. Ho, ho, ho. Check it out at Vice or at vicetv.com. Merry Christmas. Ho, ho, ho. It's all powered by Righteous Media, which is only possible due to the creative, innovative, hardworking team at Righteous Media. The little elves that are working overtime to bring you all of this great content. Creative Chris Rosenthal, brilliant Bill Schultz, and precise Paula Hernandez. Thank you to all of you for making this happen. And of course, thank you to my wife and my two boys. This weekend, we watched the F1 Formula One racing final and wow if you're not a fan max verstappen beat lewis hamilton in the final lap of the final race it was a huge controversy and you could definitely argue that lewis hamilton got screwed but more importantly how lewis hamilton handled it how he handled losing on the biggest stage in the world was so important I stopped my young sons when Lewis Hamilton spoke after the race, and I told them, boys, watch Lewis Hamilton. That is a true leader. You will lose sometimes in life, and often it won't be fair. But how you respond will reflect and define your character forever. Be like Lewis Hamilton. Lewis Hamilton and his father are a class act, and their impact is so much bigger than racing. Lewis Hamilton is an icon, and if you don't have any idea what the hell I'm talking about, 
Check out Drive to Survive, the smash hit series on Netflix about F1. It's perfect for a holiday binge. And it's one of my boys' favorite show, right after Paw Patrol and Trash Truck. America's more divided than ever, people. But we at Independent Americans are trying to change it. We're adding light to contrast to heat. And every episode is bringing you the Righteous Media Five Eyes. Independence, integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. So if you're among that 40% of Americans who are independent, you know this is your place. And if you're a Republican or a Democrat, but you're not a diehard partisan, this is your place. And if you're a concerned American who cares about the future of your country, this is your place. All are welcome here. And we invite you to join us and be a part of the solution and a part of the brotherhood and the sisterhood. Sergeant First Class Alwyn Cash didn't die for a flag. He didn't die for a president. He died for his brothers. The second squad leader at the time of Cash's death, Sergeant First Class Douglas Dodge, described it. When the improvised explosive device hit the Bradley, the first thing Dodge remembers after waking up is the pain from being on fire which he tried immediately to extinguish as best he could. He heard the other soldiers yelling for help, and he reached into the dark to find some way to open the hatch, but to no avail. And this is what he said. That's when I saw Sergeant Cash at the back of the Bradley. And I looked at him, and it was very surreal. He had his helmet on, his body armor on, his boots on, but he didn't have anything else on because it had all been burned off of him. The only thing he asked me was, where are the boys at? I just looked at him and looked at the Bradley, and he said, we got to get the boys out. We got to get the boys out. And he instantly started climbing in, into the fire. Where are the boys at? Where are the boys at? Where are my brothers? If you're a longtime listener of this show, you know my favorite Christmas movie of all time is Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. The 1977 Jim Henson classic is about many things. It's about struggle. It's about community. It's about family. It's about Christmas. It's about sacrifice. And it's about brotherhood. And this, this is my favorite song from that movie. It's that spirit of brotherhood that drove Sergeant First Class Alwyn Cash to give his life. It's that spirit of brotherhood that will be recognized this week with the Medal of Honor at the White House. And it's that spirit of brotherhood we need in America now more than ever. It's the spirit of brotherhood that should define the holidays. And it's the spirit of brotherhood that can define the future of America. So please, keep sharing that spirit. Keep sharing that hope. Because hope is the oxygen of democracy. And it's how we'll keep this movement of independent Americans growing week by week by week. And how we'll stay vigilant. Because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. And know you're not alone in your vigilance. We are all vigilant, and we're all in this together. 
from Liz Cheney to Adam Kinzinger to Chuck Todd to the family of Sergeant First Class Alwyn Cash to Emmett Otter and the entire Jug Band Christmas crew to you. All across this country, we are all in this together. We are all brothers and sisters. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening. Stay vigilant, America. Powered by Righteous Media.